This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with one of the authors of 912, The Epic Battle of the Ground Zero Responders by William Groner and Tom Tyholtz. We're joined today by William Groner. Bill, thank you so much for joining our podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Can you describe for my listeners your involvement in the book and in the case? Sure. After 9-11, there was a nine-month cleanup, and there was tens of thousands of uh, responders who were involved in the cleanup. Many uh, became ill, and uh, I was a practicing attorney and handling uh, negligence lawsuits and was consulted and retained, and my firm ultimately uh, was retained by 10,000 who were exposed, and we went through about a 10-year litigation. Uh, and as a result, we settled the case. Uh, years later, uh, I decided this is a story that had to be told, and uh, I wrote a book. I'd love to hear more about that. What made now feel like the time that you needed and wanted to tell the story behind the legal battles that these first responders went through? There's a couple of reasons I wanted to write the book. Uh, one, it was a, a fascinating litigation that involved, uh, because it was 9-11, uh, politicians, uh, the press. Uh, it was the most complex um, mass tort in history. It was the worst environmental accident that we had in uh, American soil. And as a result, the science was uh, something that was first seen. And uh, all these different pieces came into play over the 10-year litigation. But another reason I wanted to write the book was that it was an amazing story of heroism. My clients basically sacrificed themselves for the city, the state, and the nation, and uh, they knew they were uh, taking one for the team. And it's a story I thought had to be told because uh, right now I think our society is a little bit in chaos, and I think people need to realize that uh, there's many of us who look about uh, the whole as more important than the self. One of the things that I found most interesting about reading the book was that even though, you know, I I was, let's see, I was 20 years old when uh, 9-11 happened. And so, you know, the bulk of my adult life, I have been around and I thought I was paying good attention to the news and the issues surrounding uh, post 9-11. But so many things still were surprising to me. I did not understand the extent of the initial cleanup, for instance. What, in your experience, has been the most surprising to people when you tell them about what people went through and the, the litigation itself? What's been the most surprising to people? I think what you just said, so many people uh, think they know about 9-11 and were completely unaware of the story of what we call 9-12 and the responders and what they went through. It's something that was, uh, it's a story that hasn't been told uh, yet uh, until we wrote this book. And I think that's most surprising that there was so much going on for so long. The medicine was uh, fascinating. Uh, it's a, a confluence of events that created a scientific once-in-a-lifetime in a situation where there were unknown illnesses that are happening from exposure to the ground zero dust. Uh, and uh, that's a story that a lot of people were very interested in reading about, the scientific aspect as well as the litigation aspect. 
You represented some 10,000 clients, and obviously there isn't space in this book to tell the story of everyone, but I thought um, Detective Candace Baker, her tale was really so moving and highlighted how little I'd known about the cleanup effort. Could you talk a little bit about what she was called on to do after the attacks and then the experiences she then went through for the next you know, decade or so? One of the challenges in writing the book representing 10,000 was to figure out how we tell the story of everyone through the eyes and ears of uh, just a few. Uh, Candace Baker w- was a fabulous story because she showed to me the selflessness and the heroism that uh, my clients generally represented. Uh, Candace went down uh, to the pile right after 9-11. She was working there, uh, removing debris, was exposed significantly to the dust. She also uh, went to the um, Fresh Kills landfill, which was a crime scene where they were reviewing all of the uh, material that came from Ground Zero, which was 1.8 million tons that was transported by the barge. And over her approximate uh, nine months of exposure to the dust, um, she became ill uh, to various illnesses. Now, I think all of us can remember the photos in the direct aftermath of people just covered in ash and dust. Um, but you talk about how the neighborhood surrounding for for months and even perhaps years, there was a there was a smell to the air. So could you talk a little bit about what it seems people were being exposed to even months after the crash? Well, the dust was incredibly unique because if you look at a, a building and uh, and think about what if it all became dust except for the structural steel. So uh, whether it's the carpeting or the silica in the walls or the metals in the computers or the light fixtures, uh, everything in the World Trade Towers became dust. And science had never seen that before. And we believe there was a synergistic effect so that the different components added to each other and resulted in uh, the illnesses that we saw were, and there were hundreds of illnesses that we saw. Uh, and over the uh, cleanup, there, were, uh, ex- there was exposure um, by my clients uh, to the dust. When I was down at the site, I, uh, I smelled something that was so putrid. I said to myself that, uh, you know, I need to get out of here. Something is wrong. Something is bad here. Uh, and I think that's what's amazing about what my clients did is at some point they certainly knew that uh, they were um, exposed to great danger, yet they still uh, decided that uh, they were going to do their work. And not only that, years later, many will say that um, if they had to do it over again, they would do it again. Now, you spoke about the fact that this was not just a legal struggle, that this had a lot of political implications. And early on, um, the responders were being told by politicians such as Rudy Giuliani or Christine Todd Whitman that this was, you know, despite the the smell, despite the dust, it was fine. The air was safe to breathe. It wasn't just the responders who were being told that. It was also the people who lived and worked in the neighborhoods. Uh, What did your investigation find? What were they basing those statements that this was safe on? Well, we not only conducted an investigation, but many of the other um, uh, agencies, news reporters, um, the Sierra Club did their own investigations. This is one of those unusual litigations where I felt as though I had co-counsel in everyone outside of our law firm. The Sierra Club did this uh, amazing 
investigation about um, what was said, when it was said, why it was said. And generally, most people agree that clearly the wrong information was given by Rudy Giuliani and Christine Todd Whitman that the air was safe. It's unclear whether or not that was an intentional misrepresentation or whether it was just negligence, whether they just didn't have the information or whether they chose not to share it. I've seen it written uh, in uh, by both sides about whether or not this was intentional. But the bottom line is uh, my clients got the wrong information. Uh, people were told that it was safe and it was anything but safe. As an attorney, this case just represented so much complexity. You had eventually uh, 10,000 people you were representing. Something I didn't understand before reading the book was the difference between a class action, which I think is kind of the default way we think about, oh, there is a case with many, many, many plaintiffs uh, who have been harmed by something. So the difference between a class action and a mass tort. Could you just explain that very briefly for my audience? Sure. In a class action, you, you essentially have one person that represents the whole class. So essentially, you have one client, and then there is some type of resolution, and then you reach out to everyone else who was similarly uh, situated and, and tell them about a prospective settlement. In our case, there were so many disparate injuries and circumstances. The judge felt that... Each case was individual upon itself, and therefore there had to be 10,000 individual lawsuits filed, which made it an almost impossible litigation. If you can imagine, as we were getting towards the trial stage, how does the court try 10,000 individual cases? Each case could have taken up to a month or longer and cost maybe a million dollars in experts and other expenses. Uh, And at that uh, rate, uh, it would take uh, a thousand years uh, to try these cases. So it was insurmountable burden for the court and for all of us. Uh, But we understood that because each of our clients had different injuries and different exposures, that they all had their own claim that was unique and therefore uh, making it a mass tort instead of a class action made sense. Now, a lot of these decisions were being made by a judge, Judge Alvin Hellerstein. He was fascinating to me. And in the book, as you see him being faced with not only these incredibly complex legal arguments, but also so much um, individual pain. He really took on a human a human face for me. Can you talk a little bit about his role and what it was like to work with him? Yes. Judge Hellerstein was a really interesting man. He was incredibly smart, very spiritual, very thoughtful, enormously caring. And he wore that on his sleeve throughout the almost 10 years of the litigation. He talked about caring about my clients, but yet he had a job to make sure that he ruled objectively on the law. Uh, so he constantly walked this thin line of you know, being human, uh, being supportive of what my clients were going through, but yet still being someone who had to uphold the law. One really interesting moment we talked about in the book was when he first talked to us in chambers off the record and said, listen, if I end up dismissing this case, under the immunity claim, because the city was claiming that they were immune from liability because it was an emergency. And the judge asked the city, even if I do dismiss the case, uh, all 10,000 of them, don't you think these people should still be paid? Uh, Which was something I'd never heard of from a judge, uh, sort of blew my mind. And I was concerned that the defense was going to recuse him. And then years later, I talked to them about why they didn't. And they, they essentially said, listen, if we recused him, doesn't every judge feel the same way? 
that uh, even if under the law they're not entitled to money, shouldn't they, practically speaking, be entitled to some compensation? I'd like to talk a little bit about the human toll, not on the responders, who obviously we we all have such sympathy for, but what was it like to spend uh, so many years fighting for these people, uh, being part of their lives. There are 10,000 of them, so you can't really give them individual attention. But, you know, my father practiced tort law, and he would become very involved in, in people's lives. You learn about them. You start to care about their families. How did you and your partners deal with that kind of emotional toll as this carried on for so many years? On the one hand, you want to distance yourself from all of the pain that your clients have so you can do your job objectively. But on the other hand, it's the reason that I became a negligence lawyer was to connect with people who were hurt, disabled, uh, and were looking for compensation to help them lead as normal a life as possible. Uh, so I wanted to connect with my clients and it was you know, grueling and, and, and horrible. I mean, early on, uh, to be getting call after call from healthy people who uh, were coming down with cancers and other debilitating injuries was, on the one hand, part of my job to represent them, and the other hand, enormously difficult to be taking those phone calls. But over time, uh, we had a job to do, uh, and we dedicated ourselves to it. Um, it was surreal to represent them for almost a decade because there were so many, and they were so disabled. And there was such denial by the medical community and by the defendants that their injuries were real and related to the dust that it, it was the fight of a lifetime, and it was really a privilege and an honor to have represented them because we just always felt that we were representing the good guys here. Uh, and uh, that we had a winning argument and that the dust did cause these injuries and that these people were entitled to compensation. Let's talk about the science for a little bit. It makes so much practical sense, just rationally, when you say, look at the instances of pulmonary, of gastrointestinal, of you know cancer diagnoses in this group of people who are all at this place, it makes sense to me that a pulverized building containing so many, you know, computers and industrial equipment and, and everything else, you know, breathing that in can't be good. So it makes logical sense. However, it doesn't seem that medical science was there yet. How did you overcome that? How did you try and research that? How did you try and make your case that while we can't necessarily show you via super concrete tests, this this clearly has a link. How do you handle that? One of the biggest challenges in the case throughout the years was that we were ahead of the science. We had 10,000 uh, clients who had all of these injuries, but yet there was no uh, scientific basis to prove that the dust caused the injuries. We just had the numbers. I remember meeting with uh, Dr. John Howard, who was the head of NIOSH from the Center for Disease Control, and I had oh, maybe 100 or 150 blood cancers. This is around 2005, 2006. And this is when uh, it's impossible to prove legally that the cancers were related to dust because generally speaking, exposure to dust would take 10 years or longer to create uh, certain types of cancers. But yet we were just a few years out and we had so many cancers. And I met with him and I asked him about the cancer causation question. And he said, Bill, it's, it's beyond science. He goes, it's like Chernobyl and we may never know. 
And, and I remember saying, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. I mean, these were healthy people beforehand, and they were exposed to the same substance. Uh, and he said, listen, you just it's tough to prove uh, right now. Interestingly, uh, years later, he was commissioned by the federal government as part of the federal compensation bill to uh, have a team of oncologists that studied this. And as of today, Dr. John Howard's group has determined that over 70 cancers are deemed to be related to ground zero dust. Speaking of federal bills, just this summer, we had another turn of the news media towards the plight of ground zero responders. Could you talk a little bit about what this most recent uh, bill this summer accomplished for them? Uh, Sure. So um, the Victims' Compensation Fund started out early on, and uh, my uh, Congress passed it uh, for the people who uh, passed away in the towers. But it didn't apply to the rescue and recovery efforts in my 10,000 clients. And during the years of our litigation, uh, we were pushing and other people were pushing Congress to pass a bill so that people didn't have to sue. Uh, If you can imagine, my clients who are heroes had to become litigants to get compensation. And I think there was uh, found to be uh, incredible unfairness to that. So over time, Congress was considering amending the Victims' Compensation Fund and having it apply to people in lower Manhattan, and that's the Zadroga legislation. And that passed in 2012, uh, and John Stewart notably was very involved, and we talk about that in the book. And what people have been seeing lately is that they've renewed that, and John Stewart again has been behind that. So it's been uh, renewed twice, and most recently this past summer, it was permanently extended, and not just for people that worked on the pile, but anybody in lower Manhattan actually has a claim to uh, access to a federal fund for a a whole host of illnesses. Uh, God forbid they ever sustain them. One of the hardest things, I think, to read about in the book as someone who was not involved, just an American going about my life, was there was this public narrative of gratitude towards first responders, both those who died the initial attacks and also the ones who were just working tirelessly afterwards to restore normalcy to the area. And we called them heroes. We praised them. And then through your book, I'm seeing all the various ways we then abandoned and failed them. What do you think was behind the difference in what we said and how we praised them and how we acted towards them? Well, litigation causes people to go to opposite sides and fight against each other. Uh, We were suing the city and 150 contractors who were given a billion dollars by Congress for this litigation. And instead of paying us the billion dollars voluntarily and distributing it to our clients, they felt that they needed to try and dismiss the cases because they were uh, claimed to be immune from these lawsuits. And they used over $200 million of the billion in lawyers' fees to to try and dismiss the cases, and they were unsuccessful. They even went up to uh, Sonia Sotomayor at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals before she was elevated to the Supreme Court. So it was hard to believe and hard to fathom that they would take a billion dollars and use it as a defense fund. But looking at it from their perspective, the city and the contractors were greatly concerned that in the future, they were going to be subject to unlimited number of lawsuits and and extreme financial uh, exposure. So what they wanted to do was try and dismiss the cases instead of pay for them. I understand it, although I was outraged uh, then and I'm outraged now. I think 
really what should have been done is it should have been a fund instead of a litigation uh, and it should have been voluntarily distributed and i think that's one of the things our society you know has to consider in the future that the next time we have such a catastrophe that instead of making these heroes become litigants that we take a, a fund and we distribute the money so people don't have to be in uh, denial defendants don't have to say oh the injuries aren't real and they're not related We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. And when we return, I'm going to continue speaking with Bill Groner about his book, 912, The Epic Battle of the Ground Zero Responders. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Inner Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Bill Groner. And Bill, I would love to get into a little bit more about the writing process. Uh, You worked with a professional journalist. Could you talk a little bit about that partnership? Sure. I hired an agent just to find somebody who is a professional writer. Uh, and uh, we found Tom Tyholtz, who uh, not only has a, a law degree and was a lawyer, but a journalism degree, both from Columbia. And it was a fascinating process. We worked together for many years. And my first question to him is, how does this become my voice? How do the words that you write, that I'll edit, become my voice? And he said, it's easy. I'll interview you. I'll get a sense of your feelings, your thoughts, the way you look at things. And, you know, I'll write the words and you'll edit them. So that's what we did over several years. We talked about what the characters were, what the energy of uh, what the flow is going to be, because it's a very difficult process to take a 10 year litigation with all the highs and lows and make it into a compelling book. But that's what we attempted to accomplish. And I think we did a decent job at it. Let's talk more about the voice. A decision I found really fascinating was that this is not written in first person. You're not saying, I met with so-and-so. You just made the decision to speak about yourself and your involvement in the third person. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to that decision? I didn't want this to be a lawyer story. Uh, I didn't want this to be about me. Uh, I really needed it to be about the true heroes. Uh, people look at and say, my gosh, great job. Look at what you went through. And to be frank with you, you know, I had some financial exposure and I worked hard for 10 years and so did my partners, but that pales in comparison to the absolute heroism that my clients uh, showed us and uh, it needed to be about them. So we took a gamble and did something unusual and, and we wrote uh, about me in the third person. And uh, I'm one of many characters as opposed to like the main character. And uh, I hope it worked. Uh, I'm getting good feedback that people feel as though it's not a lawyer story, but it's a story about the responders. Now, as Tom was doing his own investigation uh, to write the book, Did he uncover things that you had forgotten or not known about at the time? The process that I worked with Tom was was spectacular. Uh, I had access to, I'm going to say, 50 to 100,000 emails because uh, during litigation when I communicate with all my staff and partners, and we had over 100 staff at certain points in time, we would communicate constantly by emails. So Tom got to catch up with the case and understand the case by reading 
those emails for o- o- the almost 10-year process. He would uh, read them. He would interview me. Uh, then when a uh, topic popped up that maybe related to a book that was written on a related topic, he would then stop and say, I need to read this book. And they would come back three or four days later having read the book. So he was amazing at amassing all the information. And yes, I would say in some ways, he's an expert on some areas that I, I, I was not involved in. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about this case taking a decade is that this was a decade of a lot of technological change in the law and legal technology, things that you may once have had to go through by hand and hiring additional staff to, uh, you know, go through go through documents by hand. You're dealing with 10,000 people's medical records and all of these documents was it easier by the time you were coming to the close to deal with this volume? How did your firm use technology to adapt and, and to help you with this? Uh, we couldn't have done our job if we had this case uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, there were uh, millions of pages of medical records that we had to review and understand. The most important thing for us to understand was the medical conditions of our 10,000 clients. So we hired a team of nurses that looked at every page of every medical record and input into a database that we created. Every symptom, diagnosis, treatment, medicine, test, test result. So uh, we had, I would guess, over 100 million data points, and the computer system was designed so that I could understand it better. I could understand how many asthma cases do we have, what are the severity levels, who's on what medications, uh, and uh, so technology enabled us to really, uh, by pushes of buttons, understand things that would have taken years to understand if this was done a couple of decades ago. You broke down this book into three segments, and you titled them Darkness, Progress, and Fairness. Could you talk a little bit about how you came up with those categories and and why those are the stages that this litigation went through? We wanted the book to map the chronology of the case, and those pretty much reflect what we all went through. So clearly at the beginning, it was darkness, not just the dust cloud, uh, but also the symptoms, people getting sick, people um, coming to us and starting the lawsuit, people working on the cleanup uh, and uh, you know, were bewildered about what their medical injuries were. And uh, we, we felt that was clearly a dark part for the responders. Then uh, progress was next. And um, that was, we're talking about the litigation and that through the years, we finally had some breakthroughs where we were able to start settlement negotiations. Uh, and those settlement nego- negotiations lasted uh, about two and a half years, just that piece of it. Uh, and then after the negotiations were done, uh, the judge determined, even though we disagreed with this, that uh, there had to be a fairness hearing and that uh, he was going to involve our clients and then he would have to impro- approve the settlement. We disagreed that he had to approve it. We, of course, wanted our clients to approve it. Uh, the settlement we constructed required 95% of them to approve for it to take effect. But the judge uh, determined that he'd have to approve it and had a series of fairness hearings, and that was the last section of the book. I have to say, as a reader, there there was a lot of tension to that se- section for me because in a certain... You know, you were you were 
chasing the clock in a couple different ways. First, to make sure your clients were getting this support as quickly as possible, because for many people, this had been seven years of you know, dealing with horrible medical bills and things. You also were erasing the signing of a bill. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I'm glad you felt the tension because it's the way we all lived it and the pacing of the book. And it was important for Tom and I to write it that way. Uh, I wanted people, the readers, to feel the tension throughout the years uh, that we all felt. After we settled the case and our clients were uh, approving it, and it was close to $800 million, there was uh, the Zadroga bill that was also being passed and uh, President Obama was about to sign it. And the problem is it required uh, all of my clients to finish their paperwork in our case for them to be able to settle our case and have further access to the federal funds. And it was very important for us to have our clients uh, recover the money that we recovered. And then if there's other funds, they can get them from the federal government. The problem was that they didn't have the paperwork done yet, and it was going to take us another six months. And the law required that before President Obama uh, would uh, sign the bill, everyone had to submit their paperwork. So we worked furiously with uh, the White House and asked President Obama to delay for a week the signing of the Zadroga legislation. And we crafted a very unique resolution with our ethics council where uh, he gave us an opinion that we were allowed to sign the paperwork on our client's behalf, which is what we did. And uh, thankfully, the Department of Justice uh, uh, ratified that and said, you know, if, if the lawyers signed the paperwork, that would work if they had authority. And we did. And as a result, we had the paperwork submitted. And then uh, when we finished that, uh, we told uh, President Obama through our lobbyist that uh, it's okay for him to sign the bill. And then he signed the bill. And uh, it was it was pretty hairy and very hectic and uh, and very tense for about a, a one and a half week period. Uh, in late 2010, and hopefully that came across in the book. How did this experience impact the course of your career? You're not still with the firm you were with during this litigation. What has this done for, for you, and how has this directed you in the practice of law? Uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, number one, I have this enormous respect for my clients and what they did in the concept of community. And uh, one of the uh, uh, ventures that I'm working on right now is I'm donating all these proceeds from the book to a charity. And we're in the process of creating with a Ground Zero charity an initiative so that uh, high school students and middle school students are are going to be uh, taught about community and the importance of selflessness and traits like empathy, compromise, and communication. Uh, so this experience is with me in terms of wanting me to take the heroism from my clients and sort of transfer it forward and pay it forward. Otherwise, uh, I also uh, bought a mediation company because after uh, having a uh, all-out war of litigation in this case for 10 years, part of me thinks that uh, there should be more litigation that's resolved instead of fought uh, so hard and uh, um, in the business of dispute resolution now instead of uh, you know, propagating disputes. If my listeners are interested in picking up a copy of the book for themselves, how can they do that? The book is available uh, on Amazon and hopefully at your local bookstore, but certainly Amazon has uh, plenty of stock on it. And I assume that my listeners also enjoy consuming uh, information in audio form since you're joining me now. And I actually downloaded 
the audiobook, which is read by your co-author, Tom Tyholtz, and, you know, can vouch for that being a, a great experience as well. Bill, is there anything more that you would like our listeners to take away from our chat today? I guess on a spiritual side, we feel a little bit like we're a broken society. And to me, what the responders should be known for and and, uh, now and years from now is that there are many amongst us who are selfless, who care about the greater good, who will take one for the team. Uh, And uh, I think it's just a great lesson for all of us uh, to realize that we're all in this together. And uh, to me, I think that's what they're going to be known for. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Again, I've been speaking with Bill Groner, co-author of 912, The Epic Battle of the Ground Zero Responders. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcast listening service.